0: I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me, actually, to the book of Exodus. You say, but wait, we're in the Minor Prophets. And I know, we will get to the Minor Prophets. But for the moment, we will, we will begin in, in Exodus. And um, just, to, just to place us in what we're doing, where we're going, we're spending these eight weeks in July and August preaching uh, through or in the Minor Prophets, those 12 shorter books at the end of the Old Testament, that's where you would find those, those books. Most of them are shorter books, and I give you a little explanation there under the review section about their time in history and things like that. I'll let you look at that. Um, we've commented on that. Now, major lessons from the Minor Prophets is what I've called the series under the heading of cultivating a new heart. God is doing that. He's cultivating a new heart in his people, in us. He still does that. The first two weeks now of our, of our preaching series have been focused on whole books like Hosea and then Jonah, both of them under the heading, the theme of the love of God, God's amazing love for us, as seen in the book of Hosea. We're Gomer. We are that needy, bankrupt person. We're not Hosea, who is the one who loves so well. We're Gomer. We're the ones who are are broke. And then last week with Pastor Tyler, we visited the book of Jonah where we saw the prophet, well, frankly, amazed at the love of God for those people, whoever those people are. In this case, the Ninevites, the arch enemies of his own people. And Jonah had a big lesson to learn about the love of God for people quite unlike himself. People he would just as soon have had God wipe out. And he needed to learn some things about the love of God. Now, shifting themes just a bit, okay? I'm doing this based on themes that surface in the Minor Prophets. For the next three weeks, we're stepping into categories that involve sin and judgment. That'll be fun, won't it? I know, the kind of sermons you say, hey, you should come to our church and listen to, uh, you know, a sermon on judgment and God squashing nations and... Things like that. It'll be encouraging. No, it will. You'll be glad you came. Well, three weeks. Uh, you, sometimes people say, well, when's the last time you heard our sermon on sin? Well, stick around. Yeah, you, you'll hear some of those themes being played. But today, I want to deal with one element of that. And that is, under the heading, as you see in your bulletin, the patience of God when we sin. Or the patience of God with sinners, you could also, you could also call it that. Next week Matt Ritchie will be preaching uh, a sermon under the heading of the limits of God's patient waiting. And then after that I'll be back up front with a sermon entitled The Certainty of Coming Judgment on the Wicked. Yeah. And that guess what? That'll take us straight to the cross of Jesus. Okay? So just just kind of heads up about where we're going. So 3 weeks sin, judgment, And things like that. Now, today, under that heading, the patience of God when we sin, I'm after one thing. Okay? One. Just one. Uh, If you were to outline this and say, what are the main points? There's one point. That makes it much easier on note-taking. The notes are a little longer than that, but one. One point, and I have it highlighted, bolded, in that section called today's text. It's that final sentence. That is my main point. So I'm telling you right now, if you get that, and that way if your mind wanders a little bit in the coming half hour, you'll at least get the main point. God is patient with the nations. God is patient with lost people. By that I mean people who don't know him yet. And God is patient with me. Because I want you to have, as your big takeaway, not simply a history lesson about God being patient with a bunch of people who lived a long, long time ago, that, that same God is our God, the God of the Bible, and he is patient with you. And you should be grateful for that. So that's where we're going today. Now, a, a word or two on this middle section called today's text. I want to introduce the theme in Exodus. I want to show it in Joel and Micah and Nahum. That's why we're going to those places. I want to show that one theme. I'm not going to cover everything about those books. I want to say this as we prepare to go here. Uh, My other bolded sentence here in this paragraph, God exercises holy patience, I called it, with his often rebellious people. God's patience should never be mistaken for indifference towards sin. Now, we're very different in this room. I know that. If there is an area of your life that you know is out of step with what God has in mind for you, God's patience is never supposed to be something that you say, well, good, God's patient, so I'll just keep doing what I know to be wrong. At that point, you're infringing on the kindness of God, and you're inviting his discipline in your life. That's a topic for another sermon, but I mention it here. God's patience with us should never be mistaken for indifference towards sin okay now having said that i want to i want to pray together i'm going to come back to the same sentence here or the same section in just a moment i want to pray together that god would help us here and uh, we'll we'll step into exodus briefly to find this theme all right pray with me please our father we look at this past week with so many kids and we're grateful For your sustaining all of us who were involved in that. Uh, Patience, yes, patience was a big part of the week. And even beyond the week past, we look at our own lives, our lives before you, and our interaction with other people, family, church family. And we see your patience with us. And we thank you for it. And we, as well, pray for grace that as we who receive your patience uh, see the need to be patient with others, that indeed we would be like you in this and be patient with others where they don't quite hit it either. So, Father, we we welcome you, your help, as we come to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, in past preaching, you have heard us talk about this concept that I mentioned here, a theological concept called double knowledge. And some of you know that term because you've heard us outline it, talk about it a little bit. I'll mention it just by way of introduction. Double knowledge is a, is a theological idea. It goes back to Augustine of quite a few hundred years ago. It was picked up again by John Calvin and dealt with in Calvin's Institutes. Wonderful theological idea. That is, the, is, is this, basically, that for us who know God um, through Jesus... We should always be making progress in two very important areas. That is growing in our understanding of ourself and our sinfulness and our weaknesses and our propensity to sin and learning to be more honest with ourselves, more aware of what's really going on in our own hearts. Growing in an understanding of our own depravity. Some of the great Puritans of old wrote a lot about this. Right when you think you've got yourself figured out, God, it's like he pulls back another layer of that theological onion of your heart and you see something else and you say, oh Lord, there too I have deceived myself. So growing honestly in understanding of our own sin and depravity, our own need for Christ, and at the same time growing in our understanding of the mercy and greatness and beauty of God. So double knowledge, knowledge, true knowledge of self based on scripture, And true knowledge of God, again, based on Scripture. That's why theologians have called it double knowledge. Sin, then, is part of that. The mercy of God, the corresponding part. Okay? A lot of these things just fit together when you see how they work. Now, back in Exodus. All right? Here we go. My Bible is open. I trust yours as well. Exodus 33, 34. Uh, There's a section here where God, as it were, introduces himself again. But... Exodus 33 and 34 are built on the previous part of this amazing book. I love the book of Exodus; it's great reading and uh, great preaching. By the way, it's been a few years since we've preached through the book of Exodus, uh, at least a dozen years, but we've done it. And if you if you remember some of the elements, either from reading the book or seeing the movie, you remember it starts with the Ten Commandments. Well, no, no, it doesn't. The plagues, doesn't it? The Exodus. Ten Commandments come a little later. That was last year's preaching, last summer. But Exodus begins with God's people in slavery in Egypt and a great deliverance that God provides through the, through the plagues, right? The, the mighty hand of God, um, and Moses, of course, and Aaron, his spokesman. But, but the, the power of God in bringing the people out of Egypt. Then they leave Egypt, come to, well, the Red Sea, Well, that was kind of cool, wasn't it? No way out. Completely boxed in. Army coming behind them. And God parts the sea. Can you imagine? And they walk right through. God leading them with the pillar of fire by night, cloud by day. And and off, off go the people. Deliverance. Great deliverance. Up to Mount Sinai where God speaks. He speaks. He gives them the ten words, the ten commandments. God speaks. He tells them what he's like. Now, Soon after that, these same people who've seen so much, they take those Ten Commandments and, in a sense, they break them all. Don't they? Moses shatters them. He's coming down off the mountain. You remember that moment where he throws them down because it's symbolic that God's people have broken the commandments. He breaks the Ten Commandments too, and this amazing drama. Now we're stepping into it here in Exodus 33 and 34. God uh, talking to Moses about the, the people who are, have such hard hearts. I'm going to lead you, but I'm not going to go among you. And Moses says, God, if you don't go among us, I don't want to go either. You you must go among us. You must. You must be among us. How can we we go? Well, then there's this moment at the beginning of chapter 34. God says to Moses, "Uh, cut for yourself two more tablets of stone like the first. I'll write those ten words, the ten commandments again. And then verse 6. Okay? Verse 6. Here's what God says about himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, reading this, often people gravitate right away to the second half of that and say, wow, what's that about? That element of judgment and and, uh, consequence and so on. Uh, You can spend so much time dealing with that and what it does and does not mean that you forget the first part. Here, the patience of God. Now, this same theological concept shows up in the Bible. Uh, Patience, slow to anger, long suffering. It's describing what God is like is he interacts with people like like you, like me. It's what God is like in his dealings with us. Now, I mentioned a moment ago this chronology through the book of Exodus. It's really easy to read this story and look at him and say, what a bunch of knuckleheads. I would never had I seen the plague's darkness and bugs and uh, all kinds of things, the, the, the Passover. I would never have been that much of a... Hard-hearted knucklehead. I'd have been at church every day. I would have been. in the Red Sea, if I had walked through the Red Sea, that would have changed my life forever. I wouldn't sin again. <laughs> Look what privileges they had. Look how much they knew. I would, I, if, if I'd been through, I would be the best follower of Jesus. What's wrong with those people anyway? Why do they sin when they know so much? You see where I'm going with this? Uh-huh. Why do we sin when we know so much? Look at the great privileges that are ours. On the other side of the cross of Jesus, looking back at all of these years, God's provision, God's giving us the scripture, a savior. It's easy to look at them and say, man, what? A, look at you guys. You're a mess. Mercy of God toward you. Oh, be careful. The mercy of God toward me too. The mercy of God toward you, his patience, his patience. I love how God begins his self-revelation. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Not a little bit, not, not just enough. Overflowing. This is the chocolate milk that you pour in the, in the cup and you, you look away for a minute and it goes all over the counter. I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm just saying more than enough. An analogy may not work for you, but it sure does for me. It's singing my song. More than enough, more than enough to fill a cup. A full running over that kind of mercy of God toward you. Okay, there's the theme. Now we're going to skip ahead, okay, several hundred years, and I want to show us the same theme with God's still hard-hearted people years later. I just want to surface that theme, okay? So, book of Joel, God, the God who is holy and righteous is also patient, and now this next heading on the back of your study sheet, God never simply loses it. His judgment is sure. His patient mercy is future-focused. I want to talk about that for a minute as we head toward the book of Joel. So, toward the end of the Old Testament, and you'll notice quickly that the, the books I'm going to reference are not, like, right in order. So you go Hosea, Joel, there's the first one, but then you're going to skip a couple before you get to Micah and Nahum and so on. But Joel first. Now, as you come to Joel, we're going to see this theme of coming judgment. Very serious, sobering. God's coming judgment. You're not going to miss it. Again, we're going to preach this for the next couple of weeks, looking at similar themes. But I want to assure you here by the, by my title. Can we talk about this for a minute? God never simply loses it. What do I mean by this? I want you to think about the difference for a minute between the judgment of God, the just uh, anger of God, the just wrath of God, and yours. Yours. Your anger. Uh, We live in an angry world, don't we? Uh, If you doubt that, just get on I-5 at rush hour. And you'll find out again, we live in an angry world. Yes, we do. Maybe you're part of the problem. I don't mean to insult you if that's the case. But but anger, anger management, anger problems. Anger is a deal. Anger is something some of us struggle with a lot. Because uh, in this church family, we're sinners too, aren't we? So anger, what's the difference here now? When we think about God's judgment or God's justice, his righteous wrath, I'm saying this: there are great differences between the way God exercises judgment and God's anger and ours. God, for example, never just loses it. We say this about ourselves: "Man, I just lost it. I went off on him, and then I got it all out of my system, and then I felt bad." And okay, God does not do this. That is, we get to the place where He's finally had enough, and He just blows. No, hold on. The the God of the Bible is always who he is. Never less than loving. You never get like loving God on Monday and then angry God on Tuesday and then he feels bad about it on Wednesday. No, 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 that's you. See? No, the God of the Bible in his character is dependable. So, patient. Yes. Next week again, Matt He's going to take us that next step, the limits of God's patience. What do you do with that? But I'm wanting to assure us today, the God of the Bible never just loses it with you because, forgive me, he never just loses it with you because you, you are such a mess. You're never going to have a day where God just looks at you and says, I'm done, I'm done. (laughs) And aren't you glad? Because he would have done it by now, wouldn't he? long before you made it here today. The God of the Bible never loses it. No. He is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, Peter would say many years later. Now, the book of Joel then, again, I wanted to see these themes just, just show up through the minor prophets back to back. So, uh, first of all then, Joel begins with some elements of judgment. Joel 1, verse 1, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, O oh inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children, their children to, the, to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Okay, stop for a minute. Doesn't that sound cheery? Well, in, a, in an agricultural setting, if you're growing crops, you're going to read that verse a whole lot different than you are sitting here in a chair today. Uh, most of us haven't grown enough crops where a plague of locusts coming is the judgment of God, where that would be a serious threat to you. Well, it was back in the day, because if God sends a whole bunch of locusts through, described variously as cutting, swarming, hopping, and destroying, again, that's not a good day for you if you're a farmer. God's judging them. God's sending judgment. And he's intending to do this to wake up his sleeping people, by the way. He loves them enough to say, excuse me, did you hear what I said? No, no, I don't think so. Did you hear me now? Like the commercial. This could be almost like God saying, what about now? Now do you hear me? God in his mercy, maybe speaking a little louder or different words and getting our attention because he loves us as he does. Verse 5, awake, you drunkards, weep, wail, you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine is cut off from your mouth. A nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number, its teeth are lion's teeth. It has the fangs of a lioness, it has laid waste my vine, splintered my fig tree. Those two uh, are references to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, vine and fig tree. Stripped off their bark, thrown it down, branches are, are made white, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering, the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. And then verse verse 15, alas for the day, the day of the Lord is coming. Or the day of the Lord is near. What's the day of the Lord in this case? Is it a happy day? Is it a day he's going to send ice cream every day, just like the the food truck coming on Wednesday? No, it's not. The day of the Lord here is judgment time. And Joel is beating that drum and saying it again and again. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Now, day of the Lord, judgment coming then. Other things in the future, yes, Day of the Lord, that's, a, that's a, a topic for future things. But in this moment, there's a nation sitting on their porch getting ready to come get them. The Day of the Lord, the Day of the Lord is near. But here's the deal, here's the deal. Chapter 2, the theme of the Day of the Lord continues, but you can't miss verse 12. In the midst of a, of a, of a sobering sermon, and God's people are supposed to be hearing this and repenting in the midst of it, chapter 2, verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord. Look at this. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garment. We're using the theme cultivating a new heart. Here's one of the texts where God calls it out. I don't want you just to rip your garment like you would in that culture if you're mourning. Tearing of a garment was a classic sign of mourning in Old Old Testament times, New Testament times as well. If a person had had ripped their clothing, it was as a man, something terrible is happening to you because you've ripped your clothing. Is it outward evidence that your heart is broken? And God says, you know what? Don't just rip your clothes. Rip your heart. Rend your heart, not just your garments. I'm not just after an outward show of sorrow. I want your heart to be turned back to me. So rend your heart and knock your garments. Return to the Lord your God. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. My point is this. Even as God says, folks, judgment is coming. You've been ignoring me for how long? Come on. I've been sending prophets. I've been sending people. And you are still hard-hearted. In the midst of that kind of a sermon, he says, oh, but turn to me. I don't want to just smack you. I want your hearts. It's the book of Joel. There are parts of the book of Joel, of course, that are familiar from New Testament settings. You can turn the, the page and you see the explanation of, of toward the end of chapter 2, fulfillment, looking at the day of Pentecost and the work of the gospel. End of chapter 3, verse 14, toward the end, multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. The last part of verse 16, the Lord's a refuge to his people. I want you to see the theme that in the midst of judgment, just get this, okay? In the midst of judgment, God's continuing pleading his patience with his people, turn your hearts to me. Please turn your hearts to me. Don't just give me the outward show. I've had enough of that. That shows up in some of the other prophets. I've kind of had enough of the outward shows. It's really cute and all of that. But I really am after your heart. Cultivating a new heart. Book of Micah. Take a minute. Skip ahead to that. Joel. Amos. Obadiah. Jonah. How we doing? Micah. Micah. There you go. Same theme. Same theme. I just want you to see the judgment of God. Sober. Dealing with sin and his patience. I want you to see those themes set side by side in these books. Repeated. Again. And again. And again. So Micah begins as well. Micah now is set up chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 to 5, chapters 6 and 7. It's almost like three sermons, okay? I'll I'll let you look at that yourself. But each sermon kind of begins with sobering statements, a sobering call to repentance, because God's about to judge them. The Lord, chapter 1, verse 2, from his holy temple, a witness against them. That should get your attention. Talks in chapter 1 about false gods, false idols. Chapter 2, verse 1, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When morning dawns, they perform it. He's addressing all kinds of sin in the nation. And he says, I see it, I see it, I see it. You've ignored sermon after sermon after sermon. Judgment day is coming. Yet at the end of chapter 2, the last two verses, kind of like a summary of a sermon, he says, yet I will assemble all of you, O Jacob. I'll gather the remnant of Israel. He's looking toward a future day. There's coming a day when I'm going to pull the rest of you, those who are left together. It's like God in the midst of judgment can still, still see tomorrow and still see a day. Chapter 3, similar. Chapter 3 is a sobering chapter. Chapter 4, in the midst of that sermon, God says again, there's coming another day. I can look beyond you see it, I can look beyond the mess that you are right now. And I can see a you, I can see a national you where your hearts are turned to me. By the way, folks, I mean, this, this, this works out in family and relationships in a wonderful way that even as God is serious, he is serious about the problem here. There's a big problem. He's not minimizing it. Even as he's serious about the problem, he never loses sight of what it it would look like after repentance. I can see a you that isn't messed up like this, a nation. I can see a day when there's a you that's well beyond this. We've dealt with sin. We've dealt with, I can see a you, and I believe in that. I can see a tomorrow that doesn't look like today. That's a a way of looking at things rather than saying, well, just forget it. You're a train wreck. You're a hopeless mess, and you'll never see progress. Uh, Bye-bye. That's not it. That's not how God deals with his people. I can see a tomorrow. I can see a tomorrow where your heart is different. Similarly, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, there's there's this reference that we read and quote at Christmas, Bethlehem, where Messiah Jesus would be born. Chapter 68 is very similar. I want to go to Nahum, Micah and Nahum, very next book. Again, same themes, same themes, set back to back. I'll be brief here. Nahum, chapter 1. It's, it's almost jarring how the two themes are, are placed beside themselves. Nahum 1. Now, Nahum, by the way, is Jonah part 2. Did you know that? It is. Jonah, God's judgment on coming toward Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want any part of it. They repent. God doesn't, God forgives them. He doesn't wipe them out. Jonah's upset about this. Well, Nahum is like the book of Jonah 100 years later. That, that repentance that was there for a while now has been turned upside down and they're back being as bad as they've ever been. So chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Can I get an amen? Isn't that a great memory verse? We could send our kids home with that. Uh, Nahum 1, 2 is your memory verse. Honey, what did you learn in Sunday school? There it is. We much prefer to give them verse 3, wouldn't we? The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the, Well, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Wow. Slow to anger. I love that part. But I, I just noticed how the two are set together. Judgment. Uh, avenging. God is going to deal with sin. And he is slow to anger. Back to back. Verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. Verse 7. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Look at that. You see the themes set right next to each other? Sobering, serious, dealing with sin. And the, then the very next verse, the mercy of God, his patience with us. Now, today and these next couple weeks, we're going to be uh, dealing with similar themes. The, the patient waiting of God, the limits of God's patient waiting, and the surety of coming judgment, all of which will lead us to the cross of Jesus. Today, though, I'm after one thing and one thing alone. That is the patience of God with sinners. I want you to know that the God of the Bible sees us and knows us. Uh, The psalm writer says in Psalm 103, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. That's not an excuse to sin and stay there. It's It's a reason to worship God who is more patient with you than you know. And may I say this as well, it's a cause for you to be patient with other people. Uh, I have here on your response section, we tend to love the patience of God with us, and we tend to resent the patience of God with other people. Why do you think that is? Huh? We want God to be patient with us and smack the other guys. That's the truth of the matter. Well... That, that, that conclusion there, that response to God's word, I, I repeat there our main theme, God's patience with all of us. I mention again the new covenant. God not just wanting the outward, God always wanting a change of heart, which is what he gives us in the person of Jesus. Well, I think, I think today you've, you've heard those elements, uh, the loyal love of God, his patience, his patience. I'd like to pray for us that God would help us to mull this over with gratefulness to him and as we extend it to other people. But stand with me, please, as we pray together. Our Father, you are patient with us more so than we deserve, more so than we ever understand. Uh, I think perhaps that we deceive ourselves into thinking it's not too hard for you to be patient with us, but those other rascals, man, you've got your hands full with them. And Father, the truth be known, uh, you are patient with us uh, far beyond, far beyond what we even realize. Uh, Thank you for that. Thank you for loving us down through the years. Thank you for guiding our footsteps, protecting us. Thank you for being patient with us when we when we sin again, maybe in exactly the same way as uh, many, many times before. And you are patient with us and you convict us of sin and you forgive us every time we come to you. I thank you for that. Our Father, I pray that we would understand your patience with us and therefore, therefore learn to be more patient with other people as you work in their lives as well. Thank you, our Father, for this great theme in the Bible, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.